Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It's going to be a great hour. My friend Eric Bargerhoff is my guest. And I'm going to bring him on, talk about his brand new book. It's going to be available tomorrow. I get to be his first interview, and he's so booked uh, today or tomorrow that I'm getting him tonight, which is even better. So there's going to be an opportunity for you to go to Amazon and pick this up. You're going to want to have this book. It's a blast. It's called Why Is That in the Bible? The Most Perplexing Verses and Stories and What They Teach Us. Now, Eric is a professor of Bible and theology and the associate dean of academic affairs at Trinity College in Florida. He's served in pastoral ministry for more than 20 years in churches in Ohio and Illinois and Florida. And he got his uh, doctorate in biblical and systematic theology from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, And I love Eric's books and I love his writing and he makes Bible study fun. He's my kind of guy. He's with us uh, for the whole hour. Eric, welcome. Hi, I am so excited to be with you again, Bill. Thanks for having me on uh, a day early. I know. Now, we've been talking about this book for about eight or nine months, and I've been so excited, and now here we are. <laughs> I know. It's it's taken a while to, to actually come to fruition, but boy, is it worth it. I've really enjoyed this particular book uh, out of the books that I've written. This one excites me. Not that the others don't, but this excites me because it deals with so many bizarre, strange things that are in the Bible that not everybody fully understands. So, and I completely agree, and when you were on the show several months ago, you gave me a, a teaser. You, you get, gave me an example of one of the, the stories of why is that in the Bible, and I was so fascinated, and, and uh, I, I told all my friends about it, and um, that took about two minutes, but it was really, uh, really fun <laughs> to talk about. Now, you mentioned in the introduction that the Lord delights in revealing himself to us in his word. So... Eric, why is it then that we often have trouble understanding parts of Scripture, like some of these bizarre verses that we go, what does this mean? I think it's because we have to do our homework and do do the hard work of entering into the world of the Bible. You know, these these stories are are hundreds and, and of, of course, even thousand years old, and, and there's a whole culture and a whole context and a whole way of thinking and a whole way of even communicating and talking that is a little bit different. I mean, you can look at our culture today, and you can say, how has our culture evolved in the last, what, 5, 10, 15 years? You know, even the, even the things that we use for normal conversation has evolved in terms of identifying markers. So if I asked you, hey, are you going green today? Mm-hmm. You know, you would immediately would have thought, well, am I wearing a shirt that has green on it? But no, in our culture, that means that you're, what, environmentally sensitive. Mm-hmm. You're, you're a little bit more in tune with, uh, with the language of our culture today. And so in the same way, language evolves over periods of time. So what we need to do is we need to go back into the world of the Bible to see what certain things meant in the context in which they were revealed. And, and, I, and I think that that's what we really uh, need to do more of in order to understand this. Does that seem like a daunting task to many Bible students? Well, it can, but the, the role of the translator is to kind of put 
these uh, ideas into our modern-day language that we can fully understand, which is why there is a need for ongoing translations over time. Um, so, for example, we know that the original King James Version, what's over 400 years old, So, but we go back to reading some of the Old English there, and some of the Old English is different than even how we speak today. So, for example, back in the Old English, they used to say the conversation of a person's life uh, tells all. Okay, so we would originally think that the word conversation means some kind of discussion that's taking place, uh, a word discussion or some kind of a, a talk, but actually the word conversation in Old English means the whole course of one's actions and how they live their life. So the conversation of your life is what your life is actually saying, not just an individual dialogue. That's so interesting. All right, now let's talk about some of the verses that I think a lot of Christians have struggled with. For mm -hmm. example, in your book, you bring up Luke fourteen twenty six and 27, mm -hmm. and Jesus says that his followers must hate their own families. All right, and yeah. with this I go, Eric, what did Jesus mean when he said this? Well, yeah, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And you read that, and you're like, what? How does that jive with what the Bible teaches elsewhere with regard to how we're to love our husbands, um, husbands love their wives, children are to honor their parents, and things like that? Because the Bible does not contradict itself. So what could this possibly mean? Well, this is where a little bit of word study, going a little bit deeper into the world of the first century is going to be really helpful because hate in that context did not communicate the very same idea of hate that we use today. So, for example, the, 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 the way in which they spoke is that they would hate something in a way of saying we love it less. And so when Jesus was saying you, you hate your father and mother or wife and children, he wasn't telling you that you have evil intent toward mm. your family. He wasn't telling them that they should have evil intent. Rather, in comparison to their love for Christ, they should love those other people less than they do Christ himself. So the idiom that the Hebrews use is kind of a Semitic way of talking was with regard to preference. You should prefer to love Christ more than anything else in this world, even if that means your own family. Because, you know, in some situations, people's family um, requires, what, allegiance to the family or mm -hmm. loyalty to the family. And, um, you know, if the family is not a, a Christian family or a believing family, it can put you in uh, kind of a pickle between your family and Christ. And Christ is basically saying, look, He's go repeating the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Lord is Christ. So we should love Christ more than anything else in this world. So in order to, to use that comparison, he used the word hate, but it means something very different than from what it means in our day. Well, that's so helpful. Now, for so many listeners, they, they can say that issue is now settled in my head. I get it now. And that's a, that's a big win for a lot of Bible students. So thank you for that. Sure. Now, I know that we hear things that sound like they're contradictory, mm -hmm. and everybody struggles with that because sometimes people give you that, that gotcha moment where they go, what about this? And it sounds contradictory, so how do we approach Scripture when we get confronted with or we read something which does, in fact, sound contradictory? 
Well, one of the things that we always must understand and believe that Scripture has one divine author from Genesis through Revelation. Since God is holy and pure and the source of all truth, we do know that God does not lie. So when we come to an apparent contradiction in Scripture, we always remember that the Holy Spirit does not contradict himself through the pages of Scripture. So if there's a, a, a contradiction that jumps out at us, it might need to have more of that dive-in view to look deeper to see what it is that's actually being communicated, because it may just be a surface contradiction, but if you look closer at it, um, you, you notice that it's not. So let me give you a specific example. Please. There's a story when Jesus was um, healing blind Bartimaeus, and he went into Jericho, and then the other gospel accounts say he left Jericho. And so which is it? Did he, was he, did he encounter Bartimaeus when he went into Jericho, or did he encounter Bartimaeus when he was leaving Jericho? Because the gospel accounts seem to contradict each other. But if you know that one of the gospel writers was likely referring to the ancient city of Jericho that was destroyed in Joshua's day, and that the city of Jericho was actually rebuilt a few miles down the road, then you would understand that perhaps one of the gospel writers is referring to ancient Jericho when it says that he left Jericho or, or was entering Jericho, and vice versa. The other gospel writers could be talking about the newer city of Jericho. So it's just a matter of perspective on that. We also see in that same narrative that there are two beggars on the side of the road, and then one of the gospel accounts said that there's only one beggar on the side of the road and names him Bartimaeus. So, but if there are two beggars, there is certainly one beggar, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, the, and one of the gospel writers just simply named the one beggar that was in dialogue with Jesus when Jesus was uh, leaving the city. So, so these are like surface contradictions, but a little bit deeper study, and you'll see that the Gospels actually are harmonized, and it gives you a big, fuller picture. It's one of the reasons why I, I love this book that I use in my classes called One Perfect Life by Jesus. It's actually put out by uh, Dr. John MacArthur, a, a very well-known pastor out in, in um, California. But what it does is that this book actually takes all four of the gospel accounts and then tells the story in kind of a chrono chronological order back to back. So you have the full narrative of what happens in each of these encounters with Jesus from all the different gospel writers' perspectives all in one single story great way to read the scripture. Oh, I love that. Eric, so if I'm doing a Bible study, is there going to be a cross-reference to another scripture that would help me understand that there was a old Jericho and a new Jericho? Would I ever find that out by just reading scripture? Um, you would probably need to, that's a good question, you probably need to go a little bit into like a study Bible. Okay. Uh, a, a study Bible would be very helpful and would point that out. Those kinds of things are often listed in the study notes of the Bible. So, yeah, you'd want to dig into a, a little commentary or something, but if you just had nothing but the Scripture, you might on the surface perceive that as a contradiction. Therefore, you would need to do a little bit further study to find out. I love it. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff is my guest. His new book coming out tomorrow, and I want you to hurry and get a copy because you're going to love this. It's called, Why is That in the Bible? The Most Perplexing Verses and Stories and What They Teach Us, and You Can Learn all kinds of amazing insights to some of these difficult Bible 
uh, stories and verses, and maybe you've passed over them because you go, I don't even know how to approach this one. Well, Eric has uh, done that for us. So we'll take a short break and be right back. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff, his new book is, Why is that in the Bible? The Most Perplexing Verses and Stories and What They Teach. All right, Eric, so I'm in Matthew, let's see, I'm in chapter 10, mm-hmm. and in verse 28 it says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Yeah. Okay, that's gospel. That's in Matthew 10. So right. who is Jesus referring uh to in this passage? Well, he's referring to himself in in one sense, and then he's referring to human beings that have temporal power in the earthly sense. And so let me explain that. Um, Jesus was sending out his disciples, um, and he was empowering them with some supernatural capabilities to authenticate Christ as the Messiah, plus also themselves as his messengers. And so he gave them power over spirits and disease and uh, sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God is near, that they should repent and give them the message of the gospel, right? And so Jesus told his disciples, listen, don't fear those who can only kill your body. He's referring to what? People who would persecute them, Mm -hmm. earthly powers that might have the authority or the ability to, to, you know, murder them even. He said, don't be afraid of them. Rather, have a healthy fear over the one who has power not only over your body, but also your soul. And in that sense, he was referring to himself. So in other words, don't be afraid of, of the world. You're going, to, you're going to suffer persecution. You're going to go through hard times. This world is not your home. But remember that ultimately I am sovereign over all things in this world, and so you should put your trust and your faith in me who has the one who has authority over your body and your soul, because the world can't touch your soul. But Christ is the one who is the guardian and author and creator of our souls. And we should have a healthy reverence and fear of him and go out in confidence that he has sent us to do what he's commanded us to do. And so we should have no fear of this world who can only what? They can, all they can do is kill the body. Now mm-hmm. someone would say, well that's, well, that's something to be afraid of, right? Well, not really. If you are a Christian, you should have an eternal perspective. This body is a temporary shell that you have to serve the Lord in for whatever years you're put on this earth. Um, but you've got an eternity that waits on the other side of this body, and that is something that lasts a whole lot longer. And even the pain of going through the process of dying here on earth we're often afraid of that, but actually Christ promised us that he would be with us always, even in that process, and gives us sufficient grace to undergo it. So we should have confidence in, in that we can trust our life, our body and soul to Christ. Mm, that's beautiful. Because we don't really know what those mercies will be like at that time of death. No, and I think at that moment, God gives us, you know, as a pastor, I've been with many people in their dying moments. And uh, I, I remember one of them looked at me and said, tell me how to do this. I've, I've, I've never died before. 
<laughs> and I looked at him and I said, well, I haven't either. <laughs> so, but, but I will tell you this, that every single moment of that process of dying, God's sufficient grace and presence will be there to enable us and carry us through that until we meet him on the other side. And not only is that comforting for us, but it's comforting for us with those who have already gone before us, our loved ones who have died, that Jesus met them in their time of death. And, well, and a, lot gave... of, a lot of people, Bill, erroneously, erroneously think that the one that we should be afraid of when it says killing the body and soul in hell is that that's referring to Satan. They mm -hmm. think that Satan is the one who throws us into hell and that Satan is the one who punishes us in hell. But there is no evidence anywhere in Scripture of that idea that Satan is the one who actually punishes us in hell. In fact, he himself is going to be punished in hell at the very end. Um, so God is the one who's the God of justice. Um, and some people think, well, uh, is, how, does that, how can that be that God is the one who is there punishing the wicked in hell if the hell is the absence of God's presence? Because we often think that, well... Uh, uh, God is not in hell. He couldn't be in hell uh, if because he said, depart from me, you know, at the sheep and the goats parable. And he sent them off, what, into hell, the punishment. So that depart from Christ must mean that his presence isn't there. But that's not necessarily and technically correct because because the Bible teaches that all things are held together by Christ that all things are sustained by his powerful word. So hell wouldn't exist if God's presence wasn't there to sustain it. Mm -hmm. And God's presence is also there to punish the wicked and evil because he's a God of justice. So to say that God is not in hell is not technically correct. Now, God is not in hell in terms of his presence to bless. And that is often the way we think of God's presence in Scripture is his presence to bless us. You know, we want God's presence in our life. We want his blessing in our life. But hell is the absence of God's pressing presence to bless, and, the, and he is present there, rather, to sustain and to punish the wicked for all eternity. Eric, last hour we talked a little bit about not making too many assumptions, so I'm going to try not to assume right now. But let me just ask, instead of assuming, but I would, I would assume... Uh, that Satan rules over hell and is responsible for some of our sinfulness? Well, I think you're right on the latter part, that he is responsible for some of our sinfulness, although I do think we sometimes give him too much credit and say, well, the devil maybe do it. Right. And we try to, what, explain away our own culpability when it comes to our own sin. So... Um, a lot of the evil in the world is not just because of the devil and his angels, or in his fallen angels, rather, but but rather just because of the wickedness of man. I mean, the man's heart is wicked and deceitful. Who can explain it? Jeremiah says so. So we we actually assign too much credit to the devil for some of the evil that goes on. But I don't see anywhere in Scripture that Satan has authority and power and dominion over hell itself. Okay, that's so interesting. Um, I'm trying to think of that proverb. Maybe it's in 19, it's where it says, um, a man will blow up his own life and then be angry at God. When I think of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and I do think there's an inordinate amount of uh, credit that the devil gets for our sinful behavior. Well, hell is definitely a place of eternal punishment created by God as a God of justice, 
Um, but it is one of those things that God has dominion and authority and power over. And uh, Satan can, what, trick us into believing lies that will send us to hell, but God is the one who ultimately uh, is the God of justice. Satan is not that person. Mm -hmm. You know, Eric, I'm still a little stuck on this passage in Matthew you were talking about. You know, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And I'm wondering if there isn't more you can talk to us about regarding God's character. Well... One of the things that it does teach us, and we've mentioned this just a little bit ago, is that God is a God of justice. Right. And and there will be a time when God rights all the wrongs and all the injustices that happen in this world. You know, you look at our our country and our world that we live in now, and, you know, I've seen people that have are wearing signs or, or T-shirts that say 2020, do not recommend this. <laughs> you know, the, they're, they're, they're basically saying that this is a bummer of a year, 2020. Mm-hmm. And the world in which we live, no one thinks this is ideal, okay, because we're all kind of going through this together, and we've all had to do what we need to do. But you look at the social unrest, you look at the world in which we live, and you think to ourselves, wow, this world is definitely not our home. And um, But God is still on the throne. He is still in charge. And what it does is it kind of baits us for the day in which God will make all things right. Well, he'll put all things in their proper perspective. And God, as the sovereign God of the universe, will one day put all things in their proper place, put all things under his feet in this sense. Uh, all the rights will be uh, blessed and all the wrongs will be corrected and we're kind of looking forward to that day when we don't deal with the flesh anymore when we don't deal with sin and evil boy we long for that new heavens and a new earth when our souls will be made perfect our bodies will be resurrected and immortal and uh, i just can't help i just can't help but say come lord jesus oh amen eric so um, looking at the table of contents do you have approximately 40 verses you've dealt with Forty stories or uh, uh, or verses okay. that are that deal with all kinds of things. Some things that are disgusting, some things that are really interesting. You know, we're talking about the ear that's cut off by Peter and uh, Jeremiah's linen underwear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we got a nose full of quail. You know, we've got oh, one that of them is a, a youth <laughs> group that's killed by bears. Yeah. You know. So we've got all kinds of interesting, strange stories throughout the Bible that need contextual explanation and understanding. Yeah, well, let's pick a couple when we come back. Maybe uh, one that's a little disgusting, and then maybe Jeremiah's linen and uh, linen underwear, and we can just go from there. (laughs) All right, sounds good. All right, Dr. Eric Bargerhoff is my guest. His new book comes out tomorrow, and you're going to want to look it up. Head over to Amazon.com, get that pre-order in, or buy it at midnight. It's called Why Is That in the Bible? The Most perplexing verses and stories and what they teach us. We'll be right back.
I'm back with Dr. Eric Bargerhoff. His new book is Why Is That in the Bible? The most perplexing verses and stories and what they teach us. I don't know where you want to jump in, Eric, but I'm, I'm looking at all kinds of interesting ones. Uh, handling snakes and drinking poison. I got, yeah. <laughs> I got all kinds of questions for you. Um, well, you, you mentioned Jeremiah's linen underwear, yeah. and uh, so let's go into that. That's okay. Jeremiah 13. Um, let's explain that a little bit. Number one, uh, I would first want to tell everybody that there is something in Scripture known as acted-out prophecy. In other words, there's a, a prophetic word that God gives, and basically the prophet is to act it out and or, or or kind of put it in some kind of so there actually is acting in the Bible it's to act it out so that the people can kind of get the illustration that God wants to use even even the New Testament there's some acted out prophecy Jesus uh, uh, performed some acted out prophecy uh, at the end of the Gospel of John it says he breathed on them and said receive the Holy Spirit okay but we know that scripture teaches that they didn't receive the holy spirit right at that moment because the holy spirit's um giving to the church wasn't until pentecost so jesus was acting out a prophecy that would be fulfilled at pentecost when the disciples would get the spirit uh, for the very first time in fullness to dwell within them permanently and empower them for their ministry so that's an acted out prophecy same is true in the old testament Jeremiah, the, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, I think that guy's got a great mansion in heaven because he had a terrible <laughs> life here on earth. But uh, Jeremiah was told to go and buy a pair of linen underwear and wear it without ever washing it. And, of course, you know, automatically we're thinking that's really gross. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly God's intention. So Jeremiah was to go and buy this linen underwear, and of course it's supposed to be underwear because it's supposed to represent something that's intimate, right? Mm -hmm. In the same way that Israel was supposed to have intimacy with God, this underwear was supposed to be an intimate piece of clothing that was designed to cling to your body. And of course Israel was supposed to cling to Yahweh in covenant relationship, but they hadn't done that. They had wandered off they were worshiping other gods. They had fallen into fertility cults. They had disobeyed God's commands and basically become spiritually worthless. And so what God told Jeremiah to do was to go buy this linen undergarment and wear it without washing it because that soiled undergarment that's unwashed that becomes putrid and disgusting is an actual metaphor for the spiritual condition of my people in Judah who have turned away from the living God to follow other gods. And so he was to wear this, so he did. He wore it for a long period of time, and then God came back to him again and said, go bury it in the rocks um, <laughs> down by the Euphrates River. So mm-hmm. he goes and he buries this underwear in rocks and by the Euphrates River where it will be moldy and you because know, it's by the river, so there's lots of moisture there. It's going to be moldy and disgusting. Mm-hmm. And then go, go back to get it later Ooh. after it's been there for a while. Of course, it was ruined, no use at all. And that was to be the very visual illustration that Jeremiah was to give God's people of what their spiritual condition was before a holy God wow. unless they repent. So it's an acted-out prophecy, but it's a rather unique way for God to communicate his displeasure over the sin of Judah. That is so interesting, Eric. And when he went and buried it in the rock, I'm sure Mrs. Jeremiah was happy. Uh, I, I, I have no words. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no what... words either. 
How long did he wear it? And, and my, what an interesting story. And thank you for explaining it that way. All right, what about, I'm so curious about um, the Song of Solomon. Mm. Um, there's so many confusing parts uh, that we don't really talk about Song of Solomon much nowadays. And well, why is well, it included in the Bible? Do Song, we? Of, Song of Solomon is the, is the book of the Bible that our parents feared that we would actually read. <laughs> you know, because um, they were worried that we were going to look into this and read into this and it was going to lead us down a wrong path. But, but this particular book is, is so helpful in Scripture because it's one of the few long treatments of sexuality, of human sexuality between a husband and a wife that is portrayed in a positive way in Scripture. Um, and, you know, God designed the, the marriage bed to be a beautiful thing between a husband and a wife, obviously for means of procreation, but also as an expression of covenant love between a husband and a wife. That pleasure and intimacy. So Christians have been afraid to talk about sex because why? We live in this hyper-sexualized culture where sex is always twisted and used in ways that God has not intended it to be used. But um, this Bible, this whole book of the Bible is is so helpful because it, it describes the, the actual beauty of a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. Now, throughout church history, some have interpreted this book in many ways that I think it's not intended to be interpreted. Some people just want to dismiss the sexual nature of it and talk about it being some kind of an allegorical thing where there's some hidden code in it, that this is actually a a metaphor for the history of the Israelites and their relationship with God, or is a description between Christ's love and his church, who is the bride and the bridegroom kind of idea. So, but you can't really escape a natural reading of the text because the natural, literal reading of the text describes this as nothing more than just simple love between a husband and a wife. Now, what's strange about this book is the language that is used in the Song of Songs. And, you know, we get into strange things like, your eyes are like doves, my dear. Your hair is like a flock of goats. You know, which is really not that endearing in our culture, mm-hmm. in our day, to say, hey, uh, my love, you know, your eyes are like doves. Well, what does that mean that your eyes are like doves? Well, what he's doing, he's using a metaphor that's comparing some recognizable trait about doves to her eyes. So what we would want to do is we'd study a little bit about doves and we'd find out that they have soft feathers and their gentleness in flight. And so the metaphor that he's using is basically saying, hey, my love, your eyes are soft and gentle like the feathers of a dove. So we'd have to dig a little bit deeper into the culture in which this was written to understand the language that is used so that we could understand what the actual writer was saying to his beloved and vice versa for her to say to him when this dialogue is happening in the Song of Songs. Mm -hmm. All right, Eric, let's go into send the choir into battle first. Yes. This is one of those great stories from the Old Testament where where King Jehoshaphat is uh, one of the good godly kings of Judah. And um, he's surrounded by the enemy. And, of course, they are a little bit outnumbered uh, in this whole um, struggle that they have with their enemies. 
And so Jehoshaphat is, is a man who seeks after God's heart. I mean, he is, he is a godly man. He wants to do the right thing. Now, not all of them were perfect. Um, we know that all the kings of northern Israel were corrupt, but there were some good kings from the southern kingdom of Judah, and King Jehoshaphat is one of those kings. But here, what, the Moabites and the Ammonites are getting together. They're going to go up against um, and outnumber you know, God's people, so they're they're coming from the Dead Sea, and they're going to attack um, Judah, and Jehoshaphat's afraid, and so what does he do? He resolves to seek the Lord's face and proclaims a fast for all of Judah. They gather to seek the Lord. They they pray, and, and interestingly, God raises up a prophet and says, guess what? You're not going to have to fight this battle because the Lord is going to fight it for you, and so God directly answers their prayer, and so what they do is they go out into the battle, and what Jehoshaphat does is he actually sets the choir in front of the army. Now, if you're in your church choir, you probably wouldn't feel very comfortable going in front of the United States military into battle against the enemy. But this is exactly what Jehoshaphat was doing. He sent the choir, the singers, ahead of the army into battle. And the singers were praising God and singing. It's almost as if they were confident that God was already going to give them the victory. And so they're singing and praising the Lord heading into battle. And that's exactly what happens. Um, When they get to the battle site where they're going to meet the enemy, the Lord has basically already done the work for them and has caused them to turn on each other. And they destroyed each other. And they won the victory that day without even lifting a finger. And so it's an amazing story and testimony of faith when they came to that place in the wilderness. They looked, and the large army was there, but there were corpses lying all over the ground. Nobody had escaped because God had done the victory for them without them even uh, having to go and engage in the battle. So that kind of confidence that is for us, that the battle ultimately in our life belongs to the Lord. You know, we're going to have little skirmishes here in this in this life, but we have to go into this world praising, singing, worshiping our God, living a victorious mindset, knowing that God has already won the battle. He's already promised resurrection from the dead. He's already conquered Satan through the cross. And so we can live victoriously in this life, knowing that God is the one who is going to rescue us. Amen. That's outstanding. All right, I'm not working you too hard, am I? No, this is great. Okay, Anytime. Good. Okay, good. Let's go to Angel Armies. Mm, another another one of those moments in the Old Testament where we have um, the prophet Elisha, who is, uh, and by the way, this is a great story. I would encourage your, your listeners to, to dive into this. And I think that it's one of those impetus for the song we sing in church, the Angel Armies, that surround us, and this is a, a perfect example of an Old Testament prophet who was giving the enemy's secrets of their ambush of Israel to the king of Israel, so that the king of Israel could avoid the ambushes. And of course, these are the Syrians or Arameans who are attacking the northern country of Israel, and Elisha is giving them insight into the enemy's plans. And so the 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 the. Uh, the Aramean or Syrian, that's the same group of people. The, the king's like, wait, who's, who's, who's spilling the beans? Who's, who's, uh, who on our side is handing our secrets to the king of Israel? And, and, 
one of his uh, generals says, well, it's no one, sir. It's that prophet over in Israel. He tells the king of Israel the very secrets you speak in your bedroom. And if that's not intimidating, I don't know what is. You know, so... So this king, this Aramean king, um, wants to find Elisha and catch him and destroy him because he's obviously giving him up. Well, what the funny part about this is why is it that this king uh, of Aramea actually thinks that he now is going to catch Elijah by surprise when all along Elisha is the one who's known every bit of the king's moves before he actually does it. So what they do is they go and they try to surround Elisha at night. They find out where he is. They say, oh, he's in Dothan. And that's not Alabama. That's actually a place in, in, in Israel, uh, even though there is a Dothan, Alabama. But nonetheless, they're surrounding Elisha and his servant at night because they want to sneak up on him and ambush Elisha to take him captured, to, pr- to take him prisoner so he will no longer help Israel avoid their ambushes. And so they wake up. In the morning, and Elisha's servant goes out and sees all the enemy army surrounding them, and he panics. And he says, oh, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha says, don't worry, there's more of us than there are of them. And, he's, uh, and the servant's like, what? What do you mean? I mean, it, last I checked, it's just me and you. You know, you look <laughs> at all these armies are out there. And Elisha then prays and says, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And his eyes are opened into the spirit world. So we get a glimpse in the Bible of the spirit world that we do not normally see. And surrounding them were chariots of fire and heaven's armies there to protect Elisha and his servant from the real-life Aramean army that was there to capture them. And so it's it's an amazing picture into the spirit world that we don't normally see And it reminds us that there is a lot in our life that we don't normally see. God protects his people. He has a perfect plan for his people. And he uses even his angelic beings to minister to those who are his children. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff is my guest. His new book is Why Is That in the Bible? The Most Perplexing Verses and Stories and What They Teach Us. We'll take a short break and be back with more in just a minute. Eric Bargerhoff. His book is Why Is That in the Bible? The Most Perplexing Verses and Stories and What They Teach Us. The What They Teach Us part is really important. You know, I'm looking in, at Mark in chapter 16, Eric. It, you know, it, in verse 17 and 18, it says that they will pick up snakes if they should drink anything deadly. It will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will get well. All right, now, how do we interpret that and how do we apply that today? Well, it's one of those passages of Scripture that's very controversial for obvious reason, but uh, even more controversial in whether or not it should even be included in our Bibles. Okay. Um, I would venture to say that it probably should not. Wow. Um, it's uh, one of those texts that is uh, not found in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts, um, but it is added into there, and it doesn't really even seem to fit 
um, the Gospel of Mark because uh, the language is used differently. It seems to reintroduce a person who was already introduced earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Mary Magdalene. And so it doesn't seem to even flow correctly into the ending for the Gospel of Mark. And um, so a lot of people don't see it as actual authentic scripture, but some manuscripts do include it from the ancient days. And so it's one of those things where, well, we're going to put it here. We're going to deal with it. I probably would suggest that we would not develop any theology from it. Why? Because uh, really, we're not really supposed to put the Lord our God to the test by handling a snake or drinking poison you know, to test the Lord to see if we can survive it as a testimony to our faith. In fact, that's not even how I would suggest that we do testify to our faith by trying to do these kinds of uh, outrageous ideas. I think that we testify to our faith by sharing the gospel, growing into Christ-likeness, and, and living out the Great Commission. I think those are the evidences of our faith, the fruit of the Spirit, of a changed life, uh, that is bearing all the fruit that is mentioned in Galatians 5. But we don't demonstrate our faith by doing these kinds of things. But unfortunately, there have been a group of people, uh, especially here in the United States, who have kind of taken this to heart and taken it a little bit too literally here, and as such have handled snakes and drank poison and lost their lives, putting God on the hook, so to speak, like they're putting out some kind of a fleece, but it's not really the way in which we were called to demonstrate our faith. So I would highly recommend that you not do this to any of your your listeners. Uh, it is not something that you should uh, take literally and go out and do that way. In fact, I would suggest it probably isn't even something that should be published in our Bibles. Well, that just killed my weekend plans. All right. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah, another moment of God's judgment. One of the things I do in this book, Bill, is I actually talk about this in the very introduction of the book, that God is holy. And I think today we have lost uh, a full understanding of what it means to say that God is holy. Um, in fact, the scripture we see will repeat in Isaiah 6 in his vision of heaven. He sees God seated on the throne. And you hear the angels, what, singing, holy, holy holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the repetition is for emphasis. But I I just think that we've lost sight of that. And so therefore, we kind of, what, we somewhat judge God for the way in which he brings about judgment on the earth. And God, as a holy God, can choose to bring justice and judgment. He doesn't have to let any one of us live. You know, uh, we don't really want what's fair, because what's fair is that God would basically wipe us all out, because we're born sinners, and he's holy, and he has the right to do that, but that's not who God chooses to be. He's going to be a gracious, loving God, and he's chosen to save some. Not all, but he's chosen to save some, and so God is gracious and kind and loving. That's his character, but he is also a God of justice who will deal with evil, and in this story of Ananias and Sapphira in, uh, Sapphira in, in Acts chapter 5, this was a critical moment in the life of the church where Satan obviously had put it in the hearts of these two people to lie to the disciples. What was happening was that people were selling their property as anyone had need. They weren't forced to do this. It was all a willing thing. They would sell their property and bring the proceeds of that sale 
to the apostles to be distributed to the church to help people who were in need. Well, Ananias and Sapphira sold their property but kept some of it back for themselves. But you would say, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, they own the property in the first place. Couldn't they keep some of their own share? But yes, they they had that right to do that. However, they were playing at it off, playing it off as if they were being especially sacrificial and that what they were giving to the apostles to distribute was all that the sale had given. So in other words, they were lying to them. And uh, Peter confronts them and says, why has this been put in your heart to lie to God, you know, this way? You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. And, um, and immediately God pronounced judgment upon them and immediately struck them down and killed them on the spot. Now, the wife wasn't there at the time when Ananias was uh, uh, confronted. And then she comes in later. She says the very same story. Yes, this is all the proceeds of our sale. And so we're giving it to you. And he says, why have you lied? And boom, your body's going to be carried out just like your husband's. And so God in this moment chose at this critical venture in the life of the church to not allow Satan to get a foothold to undermine what the apostles were doing, and it demonstrated such power and authority over evil that it says that kind of a healthy fear filled the whole church at that point in time. Of course, obviously it would, too. That would be a, a quick deterrent from lying to your <laughs> sure pastor would. at that point. Mm-hmm. All right, I think we should try to wrap our time up with uh, a talking donkey. Yeah, oh, this... This is one of those things, and I even got the donkey on the front of the book, if anyone ever sees it there. Um, Balaam and the talking donkey. Um, You know, God can do anything he wants anytime. And the Bible is a supernatural book. And in this particular story in the Old Testament, you know, God actually used the vocal cords of a donkey to communicate truth to Balaam, who was a wicked prophet who was being hired by some foreign nations to put a curse on God's people. So here's Moses heading towards the promised land, and these these foreign people are afraid and, and terrified, and so they hire this pagan prophet to come and put a curse on God's people. Well, God wasn't going to let that happen. God wasn't going to allow his own people to be cursed. Um, and so basically... Um, God intervenes in the situation, and when Balaam gets up to go to pronounce the curse, an angel of the Lord stands in the way, and the, the donkey sees it. <laughs> the donkey apparently has more insight into the spirit world than Balaam did. So the donkey sees it and goes off to the left or goes off to the right, and Balaam starts beating his donkey. And the funny thing about this story is that Balaam actually starts talking to his donkey. And he's like, what are you doing? And then God, in his supernatural, incredible power, opened the voice of the donkey to basically speak back to Balaam. And he says, well, what about, have, I, have I treated you like this in all of the days, you know, that you've, I've been your donkey? And, and Balaam, <laughs> and Balaam, the funny thing is that Balaam answers him back. He's like, no, you've made a fool of me, you know, and <laughs> And of course, he's talking to a donkey. That in itself would make a fool out of you. But, right. but, but he's uh, so God just used this donkey to communicate truth and actually discourages Balaam from going to pronounce a curse. In fact, God intervenes and speaks to Balaam, even though Balaam does not believe in the God of Israel. God does speak to him and tells him that you will go. 
but you will say exactly what I want you to say, and you not, will not be cursing my people. So God in that moment, what, used a donkey to speak truth. So think about this, folks. If God can use a donkey to communicate his truth, then he can communicate his truth through you and me. Amen. Boy, Eric, that's fantastic. All right, um, book comes out tomorrow. Where can go? Where, where do we go? Should we go to Amazon? Should we go somewhere else? Yep, you can go to Amazon. You can probably find it in your local Christian bookstore. Okay. Uh, you can get it off Lifeway. There's lots of different venues. You can go to the Baker Books Bethany House website and order it directly from them. It's in all kinds of markets. Okay, and then any chance we connect with you? Sorry again, I didn't hear you said. No, is there any way we can connect with you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I will be happy to give my email address out to anyone who wants to engage me in dialogue with me. And, um, yeah, if you you go to the Trinity College of Florida's website, and you'll find my faculty page there. And uh, you just click on the the email there, and I'll be happy to interact with anyone who wants to talk a little bit more about God's Word. Eric, you're awesome, and I've been excited about this book, and I I just love your writing style. I love your love for the Word, and I love that you've tackled all these difficult uh, verses and made them very clear for us, so appreciate it very much. Privilege, Bill. God bless you. God bless you to you and your family. You too. Have a good night. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff has been my guest. His book is Why Is That in the Bible? The Most Perplexing Verses and Stories and What They Teach Us. That wraps up our show for the day. Oh, I've enjoyed this day. Thank you so much for uh, listening and supporting Faith Radio. It really means a lot to all of us here at Faith Radio. We just think uh, we think so much of serving our Lord and serving you as our listener. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.